Good morning. Wow, the year is coming to a close. We are only going to meet two more Sundays. Uh, next Sunday, I will be um, teaching. I'm giving the class the title Vain Illusions and False Strivings, which is a phrase from the Buddhist tradition that we will talk about. And then the Sunday after that, Holly and I will be teaching. Then the Sunday after that, uh, we will not meet. That will be the 29th. We will have only one service here that day. This afternoon at 5 o'clock is the service of Lessons and Carols. Um, this is a high time in the life of the church, liturgically and otherwise. I think the children's candlelight service is next Sunday. Is that right? 22nd. And that will be at 4.30, I think. So, anyway. And I just want to be clear that you know that this Tuesday at 2 p.m. and at 7 p.m. there will be another showing of the documentary American Heretics. So if you have not seen it, that will be your last time. I'm sorry, what? No, it's in room 204. But it's on this floor. So just wander around. Follow the smell of the popcorn. <laughs> and that will... Okay. Hmm? Two and seven. Two and seven on, on Tuesday. On Christmas Eve, uh, there will be services. Boy, it's just amazing how hard it is to get the baby Jesus here. Uh, <laughs> noon, four, six, eight, and ten o'clock. Um, there are different services. The, uh, some of them are communion. The 10 o'clock is bilingual, but they're all wonderful services. Last year, the uh, standing room only service was at 4 o'clock. And um, we have overflow places, uh, but that's one. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. I am so excited about today. Back in August, uh, Chris Newland presented a program here to the staff, and it was incredibly impressive to me. Uh, it fit perfectly the kind of thing that I have been interested in, concerned about, focused on, about how do we heal the divide? How do we speak across the divisions that we have in our culture? How do we understand what's going on? Um, how do you understand someone who holds a position opposite of yours and communicate uh, with that person? There was a time when it didn't seem to be much of a big deal whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, uh, whether you had convictions about one form of baptism or another, but or homosexuality, or whatever the issue was, but that's not time. That's not true today. People who have been good friends with other people for years find themselves alienated from those people now because of political positions. Um, Thanksgiving dinner was tough in some families because of the political divide that that exists uh, today. Um, some people are terrified by the example our politicians are setting for our children. 
And some people say it's no big deal. It's just part of the political game. And it only goes with all that sort of thing. Um, some say truth is factuality. Others say truth is relative, dependent on your point of view. Some people think that the only trustworthy news is what's on Fox and AM radio. And others think that truth can only be found on CNN and MSNBC. Others cite the Wall Street Journal and some cite the Washington Post and on it goes. We can't even agree on what's moral anymore. So Chris spoke to all of these things and I was really smitten with what he had to say. And I'll just say this very briefly. Chris has been a member of St. Paul's um, all his life. Although he told me that like Jesus, he has some missing years. And uh, you know, I have been here 30 years, and I still don't have a key to this church. <laughs> I don't have a, they don't give but me a key. they gave you one to this building when I was a kid. Yeah, because uh, uh, there was a dark room, and I love photography. And the associate pastor that took the pictures for the paper gave me a key, and I could come in and develop pictures in this in building. high school. Yeah, in the basement. And, and, and Chris has parlayed that into a career in uh, television production and public relations. And um, he has um, been passionate the last 20 years or so about the political and church communication and how it's affected our social and cultural division. So his topic today you see is moral failings, how religion and politics are tearing us apart. Oh, I do, I've got one other thing I wanted to announce. You know that we've been taking, I have been taking a clue about guidance in giving these talks from uh, Karen Armstrong's Charter of Compassion and uh, the Reviving uh, Jesus uh, document. And um, Diane Schinke, who is sitting in the back here with her hand up. Diane, stand up. This is Diane Schinke. Diane is going to begin to lead uh, a study group on the reviving Jesus, rescuing Jesus document that um, you can find on our website as well as on uh, Jim Wallace's website starting uh, Tuesday nights in January here. And so we'll have more about that. I'm so glad that that, that is going to happen. So when Chris is done here today, um, we'll say goodbye, but those of you who want to stay after the formal end of class are certainly welcome to do so, and Holly will help facilitate that. Chris, thank you so much for coming to be with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, thank you, Bill. A um, uh, couple of little trigger warnings. We're going to uh, be discussing all kind of political, religious, and moral issues. Um, I'm going to use extreme examples of language, cultures, behaviors to make a greater point. Uh, you might, there, I know, and I've got a TED talk as part of my presentation, so I'm cheating. And I know there's a few blue words there. Um, I might slip on that too. I'm not clergy. Um, so. <laughs> And no animals have been harmed in the making of this uh, presentation. But if you do have any complaints, any concerns about the presentation, I want you to write me personal email to my personal email address, bill underscore curly at <laughs> mac.com. <clears throat> Let it rip. Let me know. Um, I, as, as Bill indicated, I've had a long career in, in the media. I started working in local television, local TV stations, local news uh, stations. Um, you know, way down in South Texas where I started, I worked here 
at Channel 2 and Channel 11 for 10 years or so. I was a freelancer, uh, worked for the networks, worked for corporate nonprofits, did a lot of the magazine shows. So I really got to see people under pressure doing you know, high-end communication before the media. Um, I have my own little video production company now. I got tired of traveling way back then, and so I do the, kind of the same thing now. And as Bill indicated, a lot of that has involved media training, so I've got to study how that works, how people present themselves, the importance of communication and PR. Um, your takeaways today, I really kind of want, I, when, I, when I had the presentation of the staff, I really kind of focused on when you talk about these things, when you talk about these polarizing issues that are now polarizing that didn't used to be, uh, that the words you chose, how you framed your issues were really much more important than people think. Um, and and I'll, we'll discuss that. I've kind of abbreviated that um, because I kind of want to get to the core of why those words are important. What psychologically and sociologically is happening to us that, that is separating us? So anyway, um, one of the first things that we're going to learn is and disabuse you of the notion that just because you're smart don't make you, intuition comes first when we talk to people, when we make our decisions. Uh, not reason, not logic, not your smart book learning. It's your, it's intuition hits you first. And a lot of us on this sort of moderate, college educated, left of center, we always think, well, if people would just get educated, they'd understand these things. It's the first thing out of a lot of people's mouth. And it's just not true. We're just as bad as they are whoever they is in your world. If, if the left was so smart about the science of climate change and the knowledge of climate, why is the left also bad about uh, anti-vaccination -vac movement? That happened on the left. So you've got both sides that say, well, if they were educated, if they were smarter, our, when we make our decisions, we always start with the, the gut reaction first. Um, and, and the most important thing, I believe, is that the fact that uh, we really do come from different moral universes. The people sort of on the left and the right and the conservative and progressive side, we see morality itself as differently. And we all think, well, here are the moral rules I live by. Here's what we learned in Sunday school. Here's what we learned in ethics class. But actually, there's a spectrum of that. And that's kind of where I probably will focus a little bit more on today. And so when we think about these things, you know, the most obvious thing is you as Bill mentioned, what happened at Thanksgiving this year? Did you have that? Remember the favorite aunt and uncle you used to have, right? The aunt that made you the cookies and made you your special dinner and took you shopping and your uncle that let you drive the pickup truck before you were old enough and took you fishing. And what, what happened to those people? Those same people now show up. <laughs> They're there. They're there. And this, what happened to them? Why? Why now do you fear their arrival at the holidays? And so were they always sort of this way and had filters on them? Were they, have they been abused by propaganda and the media and the social media? So we're, we'll, let's just talk about that. And again, remember, um, we think with uh, our guts first and uh, our intuition, not reason and logic. Let me just give you a little story. This came from the, this Jonathan Haidt book we're going to talk about. Uh, this one, uh, uh, Bill got a real kick out of this little story. Um, Julie and Mark are traveling together in France. They are both on a summer vacation from college. One night, they are staying alone in a cabin near the beach. They decide that it would be interesting and fun if, if they made love. They've known each other a long, long time, and they think it would be interesting to see what would happen. 
Julie's taking the birth control pill, but Mark, just to be safe, uses a condom, just, just you know, for double protection. They both enjoy it, but they decide, let's not do it again. They keep that night as a special secret between them, and it gives them a bond that makes them feel even closer. Now, our religious dictate here aside, nobody really has a, too much of a problem with that story. You've heard, you know, your relatives or friends, they spent the weekend at the beach, they're not married, but nothing out of the ordinary, right? I mean, is everybody kind of okay with that? Okay, one of the details is they're brother and sister. What? Where did that reaction come from? Why are you upset? There's, there's not going to be any reproduction. There was birth control. Why are you upset? Where did that come from? Where did that come from in you? Where did that deep-seated disgust all of a sudden emerge from? Let's think about that. Um, so one of, the, one of the guides that I've used, one of my two main Bibles, and something that we talked about, I'll start with today, is George Lakoff is a linguist in Berkeley, and um, he uh, wrote the book, Don't Think of an Elephant. And it's basically, he outlined his concept of framing political issues, framing divisive issues in our religion, in our culture, and in, in, in politics, and how important that is. Um, the other uh, main book, the main little book report here I'm giving, and we'll have a TED Talk, I'm cheating, part of my presentation is a TED Talk, is uh, Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Um, so uh, in, in, in uh, George Lakoff's book, he, his main concept is, is the idea of framing. And this is a long little definition, but I'll just give it to you for, for you wonks out there. Frames are mental structures that shape the way we see the world. In politics, our frames shape our social policies and institutions we form to carry out policies. Reframing is social change. You can't see or hear frames. They are part of what cognitive scientists call the cognitive unconscious. Structures in our brains that we cannot consciously access, but know by their consequences, what we call common sense is made up of unconscious, automatic, effortless inferences that follow from our unconscious frames. We also know frames through language. All words are defined relative to conceptual frames. When you hear a word, its frame is evoked in your brain. It's, it's really easy to kind of illustrate this. The title of his book is Don't Think of an Elephant. If I tell you not to think of an elephant, you can't help it. That image of the big lumbering gray animal you know at the zoo is there. And so when we do media training, for example, we teach people, you know, don't throw something out there, even as a negative. Richard Nixon is, was always, previously to the recent administrations, uh, the example we would use that when he got up there during his impeachment era and said, I am not a crook. The first thing that hits your brain, well, this guy's a crook. Why did he? He's a crook. So, and, and, and frames can come in, in terms like when we're talking about the immigration debate now. Progressives were, I think, smart to say, you know, these detention centers on the border resemble much more concentration camps. And that's much more powerful an image. And it goes beyond just those words. You actually have this huge spectrum of thought about what a concentration camp is. And it's very, it's, once it's planted in your head, it's hard to get out. And if you're in debating or if, if you're talking about this with other folks, it's hard for them to counter that without you know, getting, falling into these traps as well. Um, uh, when, we, when we talk about frames, um, 
and, and especially if you're in a debate, if you're in discussions, you don't take up, like I said, you don't take up the other side's frame. If someone accuses you of, of you know, being for illegal immigration, you don't take up that term and say, illegal immigration is okay. It's, you've already said illegal immigration is a loaded term itself. And so if you're going to take up that frame, it just sort of reinforces that whole idea. There's criminality here. And um, I know that's we could get into the weeds about what is and isn't, but that's just a, a good example. Um, and I know I'm kind of rushing here. I've got a lot of material. Again, if you want to stay, I've got some extra little video clips and some other things to illustrate some of this. But um, the rule of public speaking is not to rush, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to. Um, Framing is getting that language out that fits your worldview. But the thing is, it's not just really language. This is not some sort of trick, that, you know, some marketing trick that, that people learn and, um, and pull on you. This, if, you, if, you come, if, if the ideas and the frames and the language you use comes from deep-seated, your core values, real ideas, then these words will start to come naturally. Um, the, the conservatives, uh, by the way, are much better at this. For 30 years, they've had their think tanks, they've had their foundations. They study this carefully. I don't know if you're familiar, if you, some of the media outlets have on a guy named Frank Luntz. And he's sort of the right-wing version of George Lakoff. And he very early on, you can, he, he shows what he does. He has focus groups and dial surveys where people listen to these terms and speeches. And he measures... He measures the people's reaction and how it moves them. If he uses a certain term or phrase, will it, will it skew them to the policies of the right or the left? How does it work? Things like tax relief. If, if you, instead of just saying taxation or paying your dues to society, you say tax relief, you have the idea that taxation is an affliction and we need help, we need relief. Um, the most uh, famous one of all that Luntz especially uh, formulated was the term death tax. For years, for centuries, we uh, have had an estate tax, right? Well, the term estate tax conjures up some sort of monarchy, some sort of rich person's uh, estate, and um, that just kind of didn't play well, they thought. And so in order to reduce the estate tax or eliminate it, they did a lot of work and a lot of study on this, and they came up with the idea of a death tax. And so now when you hear anyone, especially on, on the right of the spectrum, talk about an estate tax, they will never use that term. They will say, you have to pay to die in this. This is a death tax, which is silly. The person that died isn't paying anything. They are dead. Um, but their heirs, who just won a lottery, will be paying something. But if we frame it and say, what's well, a death tax, then every impoverished person, or there, there will be a class of impoverished people who go, I'm not going to pay to die in my country. I'll vote for no death tax. You wouldn't have owed it. You don't have enough money to pay a death tax, an estate tax. Uh, things like Clear Skies Initiative, which was a pollution tax. Uh, uh, border invasion, when, when you hear especially on the right talking about immigration, it's an invasion. We've got people with leprosy and criminals are crossing the border. So again, these are very powerful images that are thrown into your head when these words are used. Um, and we often say that um, uh, we, and, and there was a book a long time ago, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank, and he articulated that the first I ever heard, people voting against their self-interest. And the, the deal is, progressives especially, folks on the left and even moderates, we like to think we're children of the Enlightenment, that 
you know, all we have to do is, it, it's the myth that comes from the Enlightenment, it's irrational to go against your self-interest. And a normal person who is rational reasons on the basis of self-interest. Economic theory and foreign policy are set up on the, uh, on the basis of this. Um, but part of this myth is, you know, if, if I just educate you, if I tell you the facts, if I enlighten you, the truth is going to set you free. And once I tell you the facts, you're going to come to more rational conclusions, my way of thinking. Well, that's silly because, and political campaigns are sort of planned on this and marketing campaigns. But again, we don't think that way. We think from our identity. We think from, you know, our gut feeling, our tribe. We're so much more tribal than you can ever imagine. We want to impress our families, our friends, our in-group. And uh, one of the things that um, uh, uh, Lakoff comes up with to talk about the psychology behind this is the fact that uh, one of his grad students came up with a concept that the metaphor for the nation is, uh, is family. And we understand our smaller circles uh, in terms of, of family. That when we, when we look at the nation, we, we know about our founding fathers. We talk about our, the daughters of the American Revolution. We send our sons and daughters off to war. And uh, so we, understand, we can understand large groups by these smaller groups. Um, the problem is when we, when we understand these things about family and see the family groups and our little tribes and our bigger tribes, really, again, psychologically, there are two family models. Um, First, the, uh, the first one would be more of a strict father family. And the strict father family is sort of, and, and, and look, this is a spectrum. Not everybody is one or the other. We both have both of these models in us, and they both can be activated, again, by language, by what our tribe is thinking. And so, uh, but, but on the extreme, or at least by definition, and, and again, you might be at work a boss who is hardcore, that any infractions of rules, firings, punishment, whatever. But you get home and you're mush with your kids. You let them walk all over you. So you have, again, you have both of these models working in you. But the strict father assumptions, strict fathers require obedient children. Punishment, even harsh punishment, will teach children discipline. It will serve to develop their own self-discipline and, and, and give the children a sense of moral order. And children will become self-reliant when they, when they have self-discipline. They can go out on their own and be, be their own fathers, be, be fathers of them, for themselves. Um, the other side of that coin, if you want to look at his metaphor, is the nurturant parent family. And the nurturant parent family is sort of gender neutral. And it, it's, it doesn't require, require such paternal uh, power, concentration of paternal power. Nurture, nurturant parenting is gender neutral. Both parents raise the child together. Children are born good and can be made better. Um, the world is a much better place, and we, we are the ones together to work on that. And parents nurture their children and teach them to nurture others. That's sort of the, the, his view of, of the psychology behind this. And so to activate your, your model in the, uh, the, the middle, um, you, you use these frames, you use the way you talk about these things, and if, if you pick up uh, Lakoff's book if you want, but uh, uh, I can get you to activate these moral worldviews on one side or the other if I'm, if I'm a good communicator. Uh, and remember, always remember that, that ideas come first. Uh, a lot of times you do see a lot of people try to find tricks, you know, if I just say this and, you know, fool them into this. If they're really centered, like, from our faith perspective, the golden rule, 
you know, the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you go to that store and, and bring it out, you're, you're going to have better luck. The next uh, part of my talk is going to be focused on Jonathan Haidt's book that I mentioned earlier. And he's just this wonderful speaker. These are not, these are not new. And in fact, this was, uh, TED Talk was given. He's given some others, but this was the best one, I think. Uh, right, I think, during the Bush administration. So there's a couple of references here. Um, but I want to start it. I think, I think you'll like him. Um, and he's going to discuss sort of, he breaks down as a sociologist. He's a professor in Chicago. Uh, break down even more of our moral worldviews and how they differ tremendously, not just as a little me metaphor of the family, but actually that morally we're different. Let me start that so we can... Suppose that two American friends are traveling together in Italy. They go to see Michelangelo's David. And when they finally come face to face with the statue, they both freeze dead in their tracks. The first guy, we'll call him Adam, is transfixed by the beauty of the perfect human form. The second guy, we'll call him Bill, is transfixed by embarrassment at staring at the thing there in the, in the center. So here's my question for you. Which one of these two guys was more likely to have voted for George Bush, which for Al Gore? I don't need to show of hands because we all have the same political stereotypes. We all know that it's, uh, that it's Bill. Um, and in this case, the stereotype corresponds to a reality. It really is a fact that liberals are much higher than conservatives on a major personality trait called openness to experience. People who are high on openness to experience just crave novelty, variety, diversity, new ideas, travel. People low on it like things that are familiar, that are, that are uh, safe and dependable. If you know about this trait, you can understand a lot of puzzles about human behavior. You can understand why artists are so different from accountants. Uh, you can actually predict uh, what kinds of books they like to read, what kinds of places they like to travel to, and what kinds of food they like to eat. Once you understand this trait, you can understand why anybody would eat at Applebee's, but not anybody that you know. <clears throat> uh, this trait also tells us a lot about politics. The, the main researcher of this trait, Robert McRae, says that open individuals have an affinity for liberal, progressive, left-wing political views. They like a society which is open and changing. Whereas closed individuals prefer conservative, traditional, right-wing views. This trait also tells us a lot about the kinds of groups people join. So here's a description of a group I found on the web. What kinds of people would join a global community welcoming people from every discipline and culture who seek a deeper understanding of the world and who hope to turn that understanding into a better future for us all? This is from some guy named Ted. <laughs> well, let's see now. If openness predicts who becomes liberal and openness predicts who becomes a Tedster, then might we predict that most Tedsters are liberal? Let's find out. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand uh, whether you are liberal, left of center on social issues we're talking about primarily, uh, or conservative. And I'll give a third option because I know there are a number of libertarians in the audience. So right now, please raise your hand down in the simulcast rooms too. Let's you know, let everybody see who's here. Please raise your hand if you would say that you are liberal or left of center. Please raise your hand high right now. Okay. Please raise your hand if you'd say you're libertarian. Okay, about a do uh, two dozen. And please raise your hand if you'd say you are right of center or conservative. One, two, three, four, five, about eight or 10. Okay, this is a bit of a problem. 
Because if our goal is to understand the world, to seek a deeper understanding of the world, our general lack of moral diversity here is going to make it harder. Because when people all share values, when people all share morals, they become a team. And once you engage the psychology of teams, it shuts down open-minded thinking. <clears throat> um, we, uh, when the liberal team loses, as it did in 2004 and as it almost did in 2000, we comfort ourselves. We try to explain why half of America voted uh, for the other team. Uh, we think they must be blinded by religion uh, or by simple stupidity. So if you think, if you think that half of America votes Republican because they are blinded in this way, then my message to you is that you're trapped in a moral matrix, in a particular moral matrix. And by the matrix, I mean literally the matrix like the movie, The Matrix. Um, but I'm here today to give you a choice. You can either take the blue pill and stick to your comforting delusions, or you can take the red pill, learn some moral psychology, and step outside the moral matrix. Now, because I know... Oh. Okay, I assume that answers my question. I was going to ask you which one you pick, but no need. You're all high in openness to experience, and besides, it looks like it might even taste good, and you're all uh, epicures. So anyway, let's go with the red pill. Let's, take, let's study some moral psychology and see where it takes us. Let's start at the beginning. What is morality, and where does it come from? The worst idea in all of psychology is the idea that the mind is a blank slate at birth. Developmental psychology has shown that kids come into the world already knowing so much about the physical and social worlds and programmed to make it uh, really easy for them to learn certain things and hard to learn others. The best definition of innateness I've ever seen, this just clarifies so many things for me, is from uh, the brain scientist Gary Marcus. He says, the initial organization of the brain does not depend that much on experience. Nature provides a first draft, which experience then revises. Built-in doesn't mean unmalleable, it means organized in advance of experience. Okay, so what's on the first draft of the moral mind? To find out, um, my, my colleague Craig Joseph and I read through the literature on anthropology, on cultural variation and morality, and also on evolutionary psychology, looking for matches. What are the sorts of things that people talk about across disciplines, that you find across cultures, and even across species? We found five, five best matches, which we call the, found, the five foundations of morality. The first one is harm care. We're all mammals here. We all have a lot of neural and hormonal programming that makes us really bond with others, care for others, feel compassion for others, especially the weak and vulnerable, gives us very strong feelings about those who cause harm. This moral foundation underlies about 70% of the moral statements I've heard here at TED. The second foundation is fairness reciprocity. Uh, there's actually ambiguous evidence as to whether you find reciprocity in other animals, but the evidence for people could not be clearer. This Norman Rockwell painting is called The Golden Rule, and we heard about this from Karen Armstrong, of course, as the foundation of so many uh, religions. That second foundation underlies the other 30% of the moral statements I've heard uh, here at TED. Third foundation is in-group loyalty. You do find groups uh, uh, in the animal kingdom, you do find cooperative groups, but these groups are always either very small or they're all siblings. It's only among humans that you find very large groups of people who are able to cooperate, join together into groups, but in this case, groups that are united to fight other groups. This probably comes from our long history of tribal living, of tribal psychology. Um, and this tribal psychology is so deeply pleasurable that even when we don't have tribes, we go ahead and make them because it's fun. Um, okay. Sports is to war as pornography is to sex. We get to exercise uh, our, some ancient, ancient drives. Uh, the, 
The fourth foundation is authority respect. Here you see submissive gestures from two members of very closely related species. But authority in humans is, is not so closely based on, on power and brutality as it is in other primates. It, it's based on more voluntary deference and even elements of love at times. The fifth foundation is purity sanctity. This painting is called The Allegory of Chastity, but purity is not just about suppressing female sexuality. It's about any kind of ideology, any kind of idea that tells you that you can attain virtue by controlling what you do with your body, by controlling what you put into your body. And while the political uh, right may moralize sex much more, uh, the political left is really doing a lot of it with food. Food is becoming extremely moralized nowadays, and a lot of it is ideas about purity, about what you're willing to touch or put into your body. I believe these are the five best candidates for what's written on the first draft of The Moral Mind. I think this is what we come with, at least a preparedness to learn all of these things. But as my son Max grows up in a liberal college town, how is this first draft going to get revised? And how will it end up being different from a kid born 60 miles south of us in Lynchburg, Virginia? To think about culture variation, let's try a different metaphor. If there really are five systems at work in the mind, five sources of intuitions and emotions, then we can think of the moral mind as being like one of those audio equalizers that has five channels where you can set it to a different setting on every channel. And my colleagues Brian Nozick and Jesse Graham and I made a questionnaire, uh, which we put up on the web at uh, www.yourmorals.org. And so far, 30,000 people have taken, have taken this questionnaire, and you can too. Here are the results. Here are the results from about 23,000 uh, American citizens. On the left, I've plotted the scores for liberals. On the right, those for conservatives, in the middle, the moderates. The blue line shows you people's responses on the average of all the harm questions. So as you see, people care about harm and care issues. They give high endorsement of these sorts of statements all across the board. But as you also see, liberals care about it a little more than conservatives. The line slopes down. Same story for fairness. But look at the other three lines. For liberals, the scores are very low. Liberals are basically saying, no, this is not morality. In-group authority, this stuff has nothing to do with morality. I reject it. But as people get more conservative, the values rise. Uh, we could say that liberals have a kind of a two-channel or two-foundation morality. Uh, conservatives have more of a five-foundation or five-channel morality. We find this in every country we look at. Here's the data for 1,100 Canadians. I'll just flip through a few other slides. The UK, Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Latin America, the Middle East. East Asia and South Asia. Notice also that on all of these graphs, the slope is steeper on in-group authority purity, which shows that within any country, the disagreement isn't over harm and fairness. Everybody, I mean, we debate over what's fair, but everybody agrees that harm and fairness matter. Moral, moral arguments within cultures are especially about issues of in-group authority purity. This effect is so robust uh, that we find it no matter how we ask the question. Uh, in one recent study, we asked people to suppose you're about to get a dog, you picked a particular breed, you learn some new information about the breed. Suppose you learn that this particular breed is independent-minded and relates to its owner as a friend and an equal. Well, if you're a liberal, you say, hey, that's great, because liberals like to say, fetch, please. <laughs> but, but if you're conservative, that's not so attractive. If you're conservative and you learn uh, that a dog is extremely loyal to its home and family and doesn't warm up quickly to strangers, for conservative, well, loyalty is good. Dogs ought to be loyal. But to a liberal, it sounds like this dog is running for the Republican nomination. <laughs> so you might say, OK, there are these differences between liberals and conservatives. But what makes those three other foundations moral? Aren't those just the foundations of xenophobia and authoritarianism and puritanism? What makes them moral? The answer, I think, is contained in this incredible triptych from Hieronymus Bosch, uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights. In the first panel, we see the moment of creation, 
all is ordered, all is beautiful, all the people and animals are doing what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be, uh, but then, given the way of the world, things change, we get every person doing whatever he wants with every aperture of every other person and every other animal. Uh, some of you might recognize this as the 60s. <laughs> but the 60s inevitably gives way uh, to the 70s, where uh, the uh, cuttings of the apertures hurt a little bit more. Of course, Bosch called this hell. Um, so this, this triptych, this, these three panels, portray the timeless truth that uh, order tends to decay, the truth of social entropy. But lest you think this is just some part of the Christian imagination where Christians have this weird problem with pleasure, here's the same story, the same progression, uh, told in a paper that was published in Nature a few years ago in which uh, Ernst Fair and Simon Gachter had people play a commons dilemma, a game in which you give people money, uh, and then on each round of the game, they can put money into a common pot, and then the experimenter doubles what's in there, and then it's all divided among the players. So it's a really nice analog for all sorts of environmental issues, where we're asking people to make a sacrifice, and they themselves don't really benefit from their own sacrifice, but you really want everybody else to sacrifice, but everybody has a temptation to free ride. And what happens uh, is that at first, people start off reasonably cooperative. And this is all played anonymously. On the first round, people give about half of the money that they can, uh, but they quickly see, you know what, other people aren't doing so much, so I don't want to be a sucker, I'm not going to cooperate. And so cooperation quickly decays from reasonably good down to close to zero. But then, and here's the trick, Fair and Gapter said on the seventh round, they told people, you know what, new rule, if you want to give some of your own money to punish people who aren't contributing, you can do that. And as soon as people heard about the punishment issue going on, cooperation shoots up. It shoots up and it keeps going up. There's a lot of research showing that to solve cooperative problems, it really helps. It's not enough to just appeal to people's good motives. It really helps to have some sort of punishment, even if it's just shame or embarrassment or gossip. You need some sort of punishment to bring people, when they're in large groups, to cooperate. There's even some recent research suggesting that religion, uh, priming God, making people think about God, often in some situations leads to more cooperative, more pro-social behavior. Um, some people think that religion is an adaptation evolved both by cultural and biological evolution to make groups to cohere in part for the purpose of, of trusting each other and then being more effective at competing with other groups. I think that's probably right, although this is a controversial issue. Um, but I'm particularly interested in religion, in the origin of religion, and in what it does to us and for us, because I think that the greatest wonder in the world is not the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is really simple. It's just a lot of rock and then a lot of water and wind and a lot of time, and you get the Grand Canyon. It's not that complicated. This is what's really complicated, that there were people living in places like the Grand Canyon, cooperating with each other, or on the savannas of Africa, or on the frozen shores of Alaska. And then some of these villages grew into the mighty cities of Babylon, and Rome, and Tenochtitlan. How did this happen? This is an absolute miracle, much harder to explain than the Grand Canyon. The answer, I think, is that they used every tool in the toolbox. It took all of our moral psychology to create these cooperative groups. Yes, you do need to be concerned about harm, you do need a psychology of justice, but it really helps to organize a group if you can have subgroups, and if those subgroups have some internal structure, uh, and if you have some ideology that tells people to suppress their carnality, to pursue higher, nobler ends. And now we get to the crux of the disagreement between liberals and conservatives because liberals reject three of these foundations. They say, no, let's celebrate diversity, not common in group membership. They say, let's question authority, and they say, keep your laws off my body. Liberals have very noble motives for doing this. Traditional authority, traditional morality, can be quite repressive and restrictive to those at the bottom, to women, to people that don't fit in. So liberals speak for the weak and oppressed. They want change and justice, even at the risk of chaos. As this guy's shirt says, stop bitching, start a revolution. If you're high in openness to experience, revolution is good, it's change, it's fun. Conservatives, on the other hand, speak for institutions and traditions. 
They want order, even at some cost, to those at the bottom. The great conservative insight is that order is really hard to achieve, it's really precious, and it's really easy to lose. So as Edmund Burke said, the restraints on men, as well as their liberties, are to be reckoned among their rights. This was after the chaos of the French Revolution. So once you see this, once you see that liberals and conservatives both have something to contribute, that they, they form a balance on, uh, on change versus stability, then I think the way is open to step outside the moral matrix. This is the great insight that all the Asian religions have, have attained. Think about yin and yang. Yin and yang aren't enemies. Yin and yang don't hate each other. Yin and yang are both necessary, like night and day, for the functioning of the world. You find the same thing in Hinduism. Uh, there are many high gods in Hinduism. Two of them are Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. This image, actually, is both of those gods sharing the same body. You have the markings of uh, Vishnu on the left, so we could think of Vishnu as the conservative god. You have the markings of Shiva on the right, Shiva is the liberal god, and they work together. You find the same thing in Buddhism. These two stanzas contain, I think, the deepest insights that have ever been attained into moral psychology. Uh, from the Zen master Sen San. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Now, unfortunately, it's a disease that has been caught by many of the world's leaders. But before you feel superior to George Bush, before you throw a stone, ask yourself, do you accept this? Do you accept stepping out of the battle of good and evil? Can you be not for or against anything? So what's the point? What should you do? Well, if you take the greatest insights from ancient Asian philosophies and religions and you combine them with the latest research on moral psychology, I think you come to these conclusions, that our righteous minds were designed uh, by evolution, um, to unite us into teams, to divide us against other teams, and then to blind us to the truth. So, what should you do? Am I telling you to not strive? Am I telling you to embrace Sensan and stop? Stop with this struggle uh, 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 of for and against? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. This is an amazing group of people who are doing so much, using so much of their, of their talent, their brilliance, their energy, their money, to make the world a better place, to fight to fight wrongs, uh, to, to solve problems. <clears throat> but as we learned from Samantha Power in her, in her uh, story about Sergio uh, Vieira de, de Mayo, you can't just go charging in saying, you're wrong and I'm right. Because as we just heard, everybody thinks they are right. A lot of the problems we have to solve are problems that require us to change other people. And if you want to change other people, a much better way to do it is to first understand who we are understand our moral psychology, understand that we all think we're right, and then step out, even if it's just for a moment, step out, check in with Sensan. Step out of the moral matrix, just try to see it as, as a struggle playing out in which everybody does think they're right, and everybody at least has some reasons, even if you disagree with them, everybody has some reasons for what they're doing. Step out, and if you do that, that's the essential move to cultivate moral humility, to get yourself out of this self-righteousness, which is the normal human condition. Think about the Dalai Lama. Think about the enormous moral authority of the Dalai Lama, and it comes from his moral humility. So I think the point, the point of, of my talk, and I think the point, of, the point of Ted, is that this is a group that is passionately engaged in the pursuit of changing the world for the better. People here are passionately engaged in trying to make the world a better place, but there is also a passionate commitment to the truth. And so I think that the answer is to use that passionate commitment for, to the truth uh, to try to turn it into a better future for us all. Thank you. Did you like that? Um, 
I'm going to go, I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to go. Also in the book, this, this segment that he talked about uh, was sort of this, this moral scale that we, we're all on. Um, that uh, he also brings forth the idea that, um, uh, oh, one, one quick thing. When he was talking about that, um, the game of commons, where we, we learn that, you know, everybody wants to be fair at first, and then you think somebody's not playing right, and so you, everybody starts <laughs> cheating and hoarding, and, and then if you ha- involve punishment, um, everything goes up again, everybody's happy to punish each other, <laughs> to make sure that they are, are part of the group. When do you think that starts? Do you think that that starts in a Sunday school class across the street when the ki- with kids and Bible stories? Do you think it starts with puberty or um, teen, the teen years or young adult years when people have experience? Studies are showing, as he was talking about infants, that that's actually imprinted in infants. That, and, and I've got some little baby study clips I don't have time for, but um, they're just fascinating where you have kids that cannot talk yet but they, they show how they react to puppets as an example. And that uh, they already understand fairness. And when fairness isn't presented to them, they understand punishing what's not fair as infants. So again, that doesn't mean we can't change and, and, and talk and adapt as we grow older. But the idea that, you know, that it's, it's strictly a nurture thing is quite wrong. Um, it's, it's a balance of both. Um, one of the, uh, uh, again, he, he talks a great deal in his book about the intuitions come first, re- reasoning second. And the, the other thing is, once you start getting these ideas, you can understand where you're being manipulated or how easy it is to be manipulated by all kinds of things. Like, if I can get you disgusted, I can skew you to start thinking a little bit further to the right on issues. He did a cool study where... Uh, he uh, had a little man on the street test, and, and he would uh, ask some little questions about, on his control group, he just asked some questions that sort of gave him an idea of where you were on a partisan scale, left or right. But then he t- the next group of people that walked up, he had a little aerosol can he would spray, and it smelled like poo. And so when, when he asked the question, people were smelling this, and guess what? They started to skew their answers further right because they were disgusted, Okay. So that's a, so if I can keep you upset about something, here, going back to language, there's a real easy one. Uh, when, when we talk about the LGBT community, um, one of the words that we don't use anymore uh, when discussing it and trying to, to change people's feelings, we don't talk about homosexuality. Does anybody know why? Because what does the word homosexuality bring, bring forward in your mind? What frame is that? You bring forth physical acts that if you're a little uncomfortable with, that's not your, your deal. And if you're a little uncomfortable, then all of a sudden, I got you disgusted. So when we talk about that, we talk about the LGBT community. We talk about gay marriage. We talk about same-sex marriage. We talk about loving relationships for, for our uh, LGBT friends. So that's just a simple deal where you can be manipulated very easily. And, and our bodies really do guide our judgment, bad smells, tastes. Um, and, you know, they've done some studies, too, that cleanliness is sort of a moral, moral purity. If you are clean and bodily clean, you tend to think more in, in pure terms. You've got uh, uh, Lady Macbeth washing her hands out, out, damn spot. You've got Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the blood on purified again. Uh, fear is the other big one. And if you watch Fox News, if you are on Breitbart website all day long, 
a lot of the uh, effort there is to keep you scared. And so it works. It really does. Um, I was going to, I don't have time for this story, but it's a fun one. Um, uh, as, as his whole talk was on, there's more to the morality than harm and care. We have the Fairness Harm, the Care and Harm Foundation. And again, these all came from thousands and thousands of years of us being tribal. If we could work together as a tribe, we could survive. And this was just thousands of years of, of, of uh, evolving. And so, uh, you know, harm and care came for probably caring as a group for children and, and, and the elderly. Um, Fairness and, and Cheating Foundation, uh, you know, we wanted to cooperate with each other, but we didn't want to be exploited. Um, the loyalty betrayal, it makes us sensitive to the signs another person is or isn't a team player. Are you with us or against us? Um, authority subversion, it's a lot easier when you have leadership, when you can assign leadership um, and follow a leader, and you had the sanctity degradation, which really came, what he suggests is the omnivore's dilemma, which is, do I eat that or not? Do I, do I take a risk and eat this plant or this animal or, or whatever and grow stronger, or do I risk getting poisoned by something that I'm unfamiliar with? And that's where he suggests in religion, a lot of the Old Testament laws about food became, because of, of uh, you know, poisonous things and, and bad food, bad meat, bad whatever, but then we can make those things sacred and make those things part of uh, our life. Um, he actually added, since that TED Talk, he added another uh, moral foundation, which was liberty and oppression, and it was sort of, uh, I'll just read here, um, notice and resent any sign of attempted domination. It triggers an urge to band together to resist or overthrow bullies and tyrants. This foundation supports the egalitarianism and anti-authoritarianism of the left, as well as the don't tread on me and give me liberty anti-government anger of, of the right. So it's kind of, that one's kind of a wash. It balances out, but he did think that was a, a moral um, uh, idea. Um, Okay, look, moral systems are interlocking sets of values, practices, institutions, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate selfishness and make social life possible. Again, if you could exist in a tribe that worked together, you could help each other grow your crops. You could take care of your sick. You could hunt together, which was much more effective than hunting alone. And this, this accounts for all of our groupishness, all of our sort of silo thinking, um, because we're programmed to do that. And if you understand that, you can maybe break out of that matrix. We're concerned about what others think of us. You say you don't, but you do. <laughs> and, and it's natural. Everybody in this class has something, something that has drawn you together, some kind of values that bring you together, and you can talk in a language. Yeah, you go to Curly. We know. We know. So every group is like that. Um, we're just, we are much more groupish than, than people give us credit for, and that brings us to his, he mentioned this briefly, morality binds us and blinds us. It, it brings us together, but uh, into these ideological teams that fight each other as the, the fate of the world depended on it, but it blinds us to the fact that somebody over there might have a better idea. Uh, again, he sort of, he had the little sports team met, uh, shot that we do that on our own. We don't even need to fight about, you know, really hardcore things. We can fight about sports teams. Um, and and when, we, when you accept that and really get into that group, you become blind to everything else. 
Um, he said, as he said, it's a controversial topic that religion played a role in our uh, evolutionary his history. Our religious minds co-evolved with our religious practices to create ever larger moral communities, particularly after the event of agriculture. Um, with uh, babies, uh, he's, nature provides that first draft, which I mentioned. Uh, experience then revises, experience revises that. Built-in doesn't mean unmalleable. It means organized in advance of experience. You saw the, 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 um, all those the, the charts of where we are, uh, progressive versus uh, conservative. Okay, so what do you do? What's the conclusion? So once you really, really try to understand this and you really want to convince someone, look, LGBT people are, are like all of us. We want caring, loving relationships. In our religion, we're, there's really mixed messages in the Bible, just like there was for slavery and women's rights and everything. So what, how do you reach these folks? Well, once you understand language, once you understand other folks' moral universes, use that to talk to them. There's a real good example that I like to give. Uh, do any of you guys know who um, Catherine Hayhoe is? Um, a climatologist out of Lufkin, out of Texas Tech. She's a young woman. She's a brilliant speaker. Um, she's a climate scientist, obviously believes in climate change and the importance of that issue. She's also an evangelical. Her husband, in fact, is an evangelical minister. And so, but probably half of her specialty is being able to talk to people that traditionally don't want this on their radar. She goes into the Rotary Club in Lufkin or, you know, uh, Lubbock and all these places where this idea is, you know, get out. And instead of just going in and saying, I'm a scientist and I know, I study these charts and graphs and the history. I know this and you couldn't pass high school physics. She doesn't say that. What she says is, can we all pray together before we begin? She tries to relate to them first. And she talks in her prayer or in her religious discussion, she talks about the earth and the stewardship of the earth and God's responsibility he's given us. And so she makes a lot of headway. Um, excuse me. Um, I'm going to show you one more. Yeah, I, got, I think I got time. Uh, real quick. Um, you've been following the church split, which is happening among us, and many of you are aware of that. And so the progressives have been terrible. The, the, the conservatives have organized this and wanted to split the church for 30 years. And they've pretty much given you the handbook of how they're doing it, and they're doing it. Um, lately, we've had uh, some, some progressive leaders that have really been smart and outspoken on this. One of them has been Adam Hamilton. I'm, I don't know if you guys have listened to anything. But I want you to... Uh, I've got a little bit of his talk post-2019 general conference, and I want you to listen. He's being questioned here after his talk. It was a long talk, but it's a great one um, if you want to find it on the web. I want you to listen here to him discussing. Somebody said, well, in, in the questions, you know, you're not being very biblical here. Is, this, is, are you, is your discussion about LGBT issues really based in Scripture? Uh, I, want, I want you to um, listen to not just what he says, but some of these moral, on the moral scale, how he talks about Change your issues. view on the Bible being God's truth. Are you trying to blend in with worldly values instead of being not of this world? It seems that you are negating your own people anyway. On and, on. Uh, and I got I got several of those. So I, I just I hope 29 years of being your pastor has shown you that I'm a person of this book. That I read it, pray it, memorize it, study it, and try to live it the best I can. He's demonstrating I try his to authority share with you the best I can on the Bible. Do I always get it right? No. But if you think that I just think, well, you know what? I just don't like that. I think I won't do that. 
No, it doesn't work that way. He's not being ugly. He's not calling anybody out. So here's what I find. If there's something in the Bible that makes my life easier, I realize, you know what, I better take that pretty serious. I don't set aside stuff that makes my life easier. But if I see something in this book that hurts another human being and it doesn't look like it represents the heart and spirit of Jesus, then I'm going to ask questions about it. Talk about the Bible. So you're the, you're the largest church in the United States by, in, the, in the United Methodist denomination, not the largest of any denomination, largest in the United Methodist Church. And I take, I feel like Jesus once said to him, much is given, much more is expected. And I take this role of being the, the largest church in the denomination and a leading church in the denomination very seriously. You know, a lot of the other large churches, not all of them, but some of the other large churches in our denomination He's talking about United how important Methodist this in institution name. is to him, they this group is to him. They a long time ago. We put it right out front. A lot of those churches don't pay their apportionments, their denominational giving every year. We pay it in the first two months of every year. So what, he's, what he did... Like we are he United Methodist. Uh, sorry. And I'm proud of that, not embarrassed or ashamed of it. But if we're going to walk down this path and nothing changes, then I think we were pushed out of the church. We didn't want to leave. And I think we will be a part of, with lots and lots and lots of other people forming the next United Methodism that looks more like the United Methodism that many of you remember from your childhood. It's not that the position, the Methodist position was always same-sex marriage is okay. Nobody even thought about that 50 years ago. But a sort of generousness towards people who have a difference of opinion on how we interpret things while holding on to the essentials of the faith is an essential part of who we are. See what he did there? He, he, didn't, he didn't go up against and call out anybody, but he used the values of the broader group authority on, on the scripture, the sacredness of the Bible, and also the importance of the institution, which is a core value for conservatives, to, to talk to them. He didn't do it, you know, literally, but he did that by the way he talked to people. That's all I've got today. I've got some extra little pieces about some of these details. I'm happy to take questions later, but I know we're running out of time. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you.